Well, good morning, Hillcrest Baptist Church. It's a joy to be here together. Who of you can remember what I preached on last time? Unfair question, I know. But uh, today's text will give you a hint. So last time I preached on the previous five verses. But uh, I don't expect you to remember that, so I'll give you a bit of a context as we go through today's lesson. So uh, let's uh, start by listening to what the Lord said through the Apostle Peter that we uh, hope to apply to our lives today, and that is in 1 Peter 1. You may want to keep your finger there in the text, because we'll obviously refer back to that often. I'll refer to some other verses, but uh, you don't have to worry about those. If you're not quick enough to page there, or you don't have electronics where you can go and do a quick search, uh, I'll read them for you. But let's read together 1 Peter 1 from verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the past passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's the word of the Lord for this morning. So uh, as we start, I want to uh, ask you a question. And I really would like an answer. And this may be difficult because for the last year or so, we've not really had an opportunity to visit together socially, right? So you may have to go back in time and remember when you would visit with a family with small children. Here's the scenario. So let's say the family arrives at your house and you take out the cookie jar and you hold out the cookie jar to the child and you say to the child, would you like a cookie? What does the mother say? Say please, yes. And then when you hand over the cookie, what does the mother say? Say thank you, yes. Why? Because the parents want the child to react in the right way. And if the child reacts in the right way, then it portrays and it shows how much this child follows in the footsteps of the parent. Because the parents also went through that. You won't believe it, but they did. Also had parents who had to say, say please, say thank you. At some stage, I can't remember when our children clicked in. I, I don't know the ages. But at some point, I was surprised to hear them say, without us having to say, please and thank you. Our Oldest son, he was an expert in manipulating social behavior because uh, Nettie would always make sure that uh, they had enough to eat before we go to supper for, with someone else. Otherwise, they would totally pig out. But Vanner, our oldest son, was so good and well-mannered that he would have his meal and then uh, he would finish his plate and then he'll get up and he'll say, thank you very much, that was lovely food. And what would the hostess say? Please have more. And he said, no, thank you. And she said, no, please have more. Then he'd look over to Nettie and he'll say, <laughs> then he'll have more. 
So, social behavior, we want our children to respond in the correct way, exactly the same with our spiritual lives. Children must be taught to respond in the right way. Today, we are learning, maybe for the first time, and maybe by reminder, that there's a required response to the wonderful Savior that is our first Peter. Uh, first Peter writes the letter, and he starts by explaining what salvation is. I just love this book, and I, and I think our favorite book in the Bible is the one that we're currently studying. So this is my current favorite book. And he starts by explaining salvation. Here's an example, 1 Peter 1, verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, and Peter talks about Jesus, you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then Peter goes further and he adds more value to the Savior by calling a number of extraordinary witnesses. So he calls the prophets and the apostles, and the apostles are informed and the prophets are informed by the Holy Spirit, and then even the angels. Even the angels, it's as if they turn their worshipful gaze away from God just for a moment and look at what's happening with salvation, and they, and they have this longing look into salvation. The angels turn their worship away to look at salvation, and that gives them cause to worship even more. Prophets studying the details of what God told them about salvation, all of this informed, the details informed by the Holy Spirit. The apostles proclaimed the details that they learned from Jesus and was confirmed through the Holy Spirit, and the angels look to look into the details of salvation. And then we come to verse 13. It starts with therefore. So Peter changes from informing us to confronting us. He says, now that you know this, that's what, what the therefore is there for. Therefore, for this reason, for the value of salvation and the value of the Savior that you know about now, for this reason, here's what you must do. The instruction comes. So knowing who the perfect Savior is, we now hear through Peter what the required response must be by those who are called children of God. No greater gift given to man, no greater Savior available to man, no other Savior available to man. Salvation given in grace and by grace demands a grateful and effective response. Because of what Jesus did, is doing, and will still do, Christian, your required response is given in these verses. And there are three responses. First response, required response, is you have to live in hope. Second re required response is you have to strive for holiness. And the third required response is that you have to aim to honor the Father. So let's start with number one in verse 13. Your required response to this amazing Savior, this perfect Savior, is to live in hope. See if you can find the command in this verse. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what is the command in line with the, uh, the heading? Set your hope, right? Thank you. Well done. You did excellently there on the first test. You set your hope. And not only set your hope, but you set your hope fully. 
on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about the details in, in this verse a bit. But set your hope fully is your command. Hope is a wonderful emotion, isn't it? If someone is with hope, it's someone that you want to be around with, you want to associate with them, uh, they themselves express and live out the joy that is theirs and the hopefulness in their character. No one wants to be with a hopeless person. But this hope becomes more valuable if it's based on reality. And here's a reality that uh, Paul gave us in Romans 15 verse 4. For whatever was written in former days, so Paul talks about the Old Testament mostly, and we now have the New Testament, so for whatever was written in former days was written for your instruction. Yes, we know that. We are instructed and we, we get to know these things more and more as we live longer and longer. But then he continues and he says that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Isn't that wonderful? That's why great men of the faith say, when you feel hopeless, what do you do? You put your nose back in the Bible. You study Scripture. You get to know who God is, and that restores your hope. But what is hope? I thought about that, and I thought I'll, uh, I'll go and study it a bit for, for your benefit. So I went to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and uh, Merriam-Webster, I don't think it was Merriam herself, but some people who worked under her name, got, up, got this from the definition of hope. It is to cherish a desire with anticipation to want something to happen or to be true. Not a bad, not a bad uh, description of what hope is, but... MacArthur, John MacArthur, has a better one. He says, for Christians, hope is your attitude towards the future. Simply put, but accurate. In essence, hope is believing God, having faith in God for the future. You have hope when you trust God for the future. Not only do you believe that God can, because your faith is based partly on what you saw God did, what you read about what God did. That's faith. But hope is believing what God can and will do. In verse 13, your required response is, set your hope fully on God who saved you. So the word fully there is an important word. It's not in the, the way that you'll put your hope in the possibility of um, rugby starting up again and that you may be able to go and watch at the stadium with other people, without masks. Not sure when that's going to happen and whether it's going to happen and who's going to make the decision. Not that kind of hope. This is a fully hope. And the fully hope, let me explain it to you this, like this. You'll know the answer. So let's, uh, let's imagine for a moment you come and visit me and you bring what I always so gently ask you to bring, and that is Octat, and you dish up a proper slice, uh, within a certain amount of time, how much do you think will be left on the plate, my plate? Zilts, zilts, says Mark, nothing, right? That's like, that's how I am about milk God. I am fully committed, fully, totally. No doubt, it'll be gone. You will not see me leave a crumb. That's the right attitude to have with regards to your hope, fully. You don't need anything else to be added to your hope in 
the grace of God. Full dedication. God, who replaced your hard heart with a new heart, is to be fully trusted. 1 Peter 1 verse 3, if you just turn back a bit in your Bible, listen to the beginning of that uh, verse, and, and in the middle I'll point it out to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Just note Peter's purpose in commanding us to a living hope. Uh, to a living hope and to live in hope. Blessed be the God and Father. So sure, we benefit and we benefit greatly, but our purpose is much more important in value with regards to our hope. So if you live a life of hope, you benefit, you're much more joyful, less stressed, less concerned about the things of this life, looking forward to that amazing ultimate hope that is ours, the grace of God, but it's more important, blessed be the Father. You are to live in hope because it brings God glory. That is our ultimate goal. Christians living in hope shows God's value. If you claim to be a Christian and you don't live in hope, it is as if you are saying that God cannot be trusted. You are saying that God cannot or will not do what He said He will do. When you live in hope, on the other hand, you show that God can be trusted. He will do what He said He will do. And you know it. That's what you show. Here's a wonderful Old Testament example. Remember Abraham. He received faith and grace from God. And here's what Paul writes to the Romans about Abraham. He said, in hope he, Abraham, believed against hope. I just love the the contrast there. He hoped against hope. So in hope he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. No offense, Uncle Ken. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So just look at this. There's a benefit in the purpose of your hope in the example of Abraham's hope. It says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. There's a living hope. And then, but he grew strong in his faith, and there's the benefit. As we live a life of hope, we grow stronger in our faith. And then the ultimate purpose, he gave glory to God. What do you hope for? Do you hope in the next month or so that this pandemic will be behind us so that you can uh, have a, a better social life, minister better to God's people. That's a good thing to wish for and to hope for. You hope that you'll be able to meet with your family more regularly. Do you hope that the church will expand? Those are all good things to hope for. But our hope must be fully set on the grace of God 
as that helps us to glorify him. First Peter 1 verse 13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You set your hope on what? It's in the verse. Set your hope fully on the grace. Yes. Second, second test passed. What is, what is the grace? The first part of your salvation has happened through grace. The second part, the completion, will appear, but just look carefully at the statement. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it looks as if it says, ultimately one day when Jesus Christ returns, then that grace will be fully revealed. Well, it does say that, but it says more. Because the words will be brought to you, originally in its structure in the original Greek, it, it may mean, and I do believe it means, set your hope fully on the grace that is continually and will ultimately be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes, you are looking forward with hope to the revelation of Jesus at the second coming. And we agree easily with John and say, come, Lord Jesus, come. We can't wait for the completion of God's salvation plan through grace. And we even enjoy the thought, I must confess, I do. I have a list of people, some evil men, where I enjoy the thought of them bending the knee before the king. But we can rely on that grace to be available and effective even today and tomorrow and the next week and the next month and until and way beyond the end of this pandemic. This is how Paul explains today's gift of grace to us, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see? He doesn't say, but by the grace of God, I will be what I will be. I am what I am. Then he emphasizes it. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Not will be with me, is with me. Every day, you can wake up and set your hope fully, full commitment on that hope, on the grace that will be brought to you on this day and in this week and in that month and in the next year until you either leave this life to go to be with Jesus or he comes and fetches all of us. Just one last notice about verse 13 and before we go to the second point. Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. There's no mention of feeling there, is there? Yet so often, we miss out on living a life of hope because we rely on our feelings. Wake up in the morning, and you may get out of bed on the wrong side, and then the whole day just looks miserable. And then you believe what your heart tells you. It should be the other way around. The way our behavior ultimately changes, and the, way we, the way that our feeling about what we do changes, starts with knowing. If you know what is right and true, your heart is deceitful. The Bible says so. Don't believe your heart. Believe the truth of the Bible. So when you wake up in the morning not feeling so good about the day, 
knowing without any doubt this is going to be a... But if you wake up and you start filling your mind instead of your heart, fill your mind with the truth, you believe that truth, that truth becomes a conviction, that conviction drives your behavior. Instead of letting your heart speak to your mind, let your mind speak to your heart. Instruct your heart. The heart is deceitful. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. This means that you don't allow things to dull your mind. If you are serious about responding in the right way to this glorious Savior, then you must do what you can, whatever you can, to keep your mind clear. You fill your mind with the truth. You don't allow chemicals or alcohol or false negative thoughts to take away this preparedness for true hope. So Christian, you are, you are required to respond to your perfect Savior by living every day and ultimately throughout your life living in hope. Second point, the correct and required response to a perfect Savior is to strive for holiness. 1 Peter 1 verse 14 to 16, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy, look at what you are called here by, by Peter. This is, this is my own words. I jumped from the verse into the, the comment. So, Rewind a bit, finish the verse, for I am holy. This is me speaking. Just look at what Peter calls you. Obedient children. Peter doesn't say, be obedient children so that you won't conform to the passions of your former ignorance. He calls you obedient children. You say, well, hang on, wait, wait, wait. I'm not that obedient. I'm not sure if I will put a label on my jacket that says obedient child, not so sure about that. Okay, so you don't always obey, but your desire to obey increase as you grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Right. So be like Jesus because you advertise his character. How can you be holy? This will help us. How do you get to the state of holiness? Verse 14, you become holy by not giving in to the peer pressure of the world, because it says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to this world. R.C. Sproul's advice is simply, don't be a conformist. Very clear and simple. So break with your former life. Don't live for this life like the mindless pagan would do. Your thinking must not be in line with your former ignorance. Don't be driven by the fleshly desires that drove you before you became a Christian. Don't be ignorant of the result of that kind of lifestyle. Think and apply your thinking. You have a new life. You are different. You are righteous. You are holy. You have been transformed. Before God got hold of you, you were a disobedient person. That's all you were. But once He saved you, and made you one of his children, you became an obedient child. That's why Paul is so confident in calling you obedient children. 
you break with the past, you embrace the reality of the present and the future. So it doesn't mean that you always obey, but you now have the ability, which you didn't have, to obey. You have the ability to understand what God says, you have the conviction of the Holy Spirit to convict you of what God says, and you have the help of the Holy Spirit to help you do what God says. How holy must you be? Just a little bit. Look at what verse 15 says. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. In the same way that God is holy, you must be holy in all your conduct. Well, we cannot be as holy as God in quality, right? But we must be as holy as God in principle and in essence. God is totally set apart. That's what holy, holy means. He is set apart. He is focused on one main thing, and that is his own glory. That's a wonderful thing. God is the perfect being. The best thing he can do is to show himself to us and say, here are some tools for you to become more like me, closer to the perfect person. We must strive to be set apart. That is holy. Set apart, focused on living for God's glory. The plans that you're making for this week, have you considered God's glory? The menu for tomorrow, have you considered God's glory? Your budget, have you considered God's glory? As you came in this morning, was your desire to glorify God? Your alone time, is that for God's glory? Your engagement with your child, is that for God's glory? What you read about the vaccinations and your decisions about that, is that for God's glory? All set apart for God's glory. That's a different, totally different to the world. To be holy like God means to act like God. Stop doing what people do and to start doing what God does. Not to stress about the things of this life as much. I so love what John Stott wrote in one of his last books when he was asked, after many, many years of faithful ministry, Pastor John, what would you change? One thing, what would you change if you can change anything in your life? And he said, I will take myself less seriously. I think we take ourselves too seriously. We are so engulfed and overwhelmed and concerned about the things of this life. This is not the main event. The main event is to come, but we can live in this event as a precursor, becoming more like Jesus, becoming more like God, and glorifying Him, living a holy life. Ephesians 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. We cannot be as holy as God to His extent, but we can have a smaller measure of the same kind of holiness, and that is what we must strive for. When God called you and he made you one of his own, that was an effective call. It worked. I had no interest in becoming a Christian at all. God grabbed me by the scruff of my neck and pulled me in. I landed inside the kingdom 
and did not know what happened. He called, and it was effective. That same God who had an effective call on your life for your salvation calls you to imitate his character. And he said, he who started the good work and you shall complete it. He's busy with that. You may as well work with him. Verse 16, what principle drives you to pursue holiness? That verse, verse 16 starts with, since it is written. That settles it, doesn't it? Why should you strive to live a holy life? It's written. God said so. If you go back to Leviticus 11, verse 45, which is what Peter quotes, it reads as follows, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. You are to be holy, not because of what it makes you. Yes, that's a benefit. But you should be holy because of what it says about God. God is your Father, right? You want to obey Him and you want to honor Him. In Leviticus 18, you'll go through many of those verses, actually the whole of Leviticus, the whole of the Old Testament, and you'll see this phrase often. God will say, I want you to do this. This is a rough translation. This is Brahms' version of the Old Testament. You must do this, and then God will say, then this will happen, and if you don't do this, then this will happen. And then he often says, I am the Lord. And sometimes he adds, I am the Lord, your God. Eight times in Leviticus 18 only, 188 times in the Old Testament. I am the Lord, or I am the Lord, your God. So God wrote, instructed us to be holy. So he requires holiness from us. And as a child of God, you associate with God, right? You carry the family name. You represent the Father. Each and every unholy act breaks down the value of the Father's name. Can you see why it is required to strive for holiness? So you are required to live in hope. You are to strive for holiness. And now thirdly, and this works together because of a perfect Savior, you are required to respond by honoring God. It leads on from the previous point. 1 Peter 1 verse 17 reads, And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. As a Christian, you are required to honor the Father by living in hope, all the while aiming to be holy, and then you want to honor God because of that. If you call on Him as Father, and you do, don't you? Remember the prayer that we studied, our Father who art in heaven, our Father? So as you get to know the Father, you get to know what He can do and what He did, and you remember what He's able to do and how He judges. That verse also says you call Him Father, and He's also your judge. You know what He will do with sin, what He can do with sin. You know how much He hates sin, and you remember what God did in the past. At one time, He had the earth have many people for lunch. What was it, 25,000, I think, if I remember correctly? Lots of people, right? It's, it's as if the stadium in Durban will be just, you know, golfed up. One chomp, gone. That's what he can do. God has judged in the past. He said that he will judge in the future. And the Father also said that sin has consequences. And what God says, he does. He's your Father, he's also your judge, and he will not send you to hell because salvation is secure but he will provide the consequences. 
And every time you harm his honor, he will judge you and there will be consequences. So we don't fear God, but we fear what God can do. We have a healthy fear of what God can do. I'll explain it to you like this. I, uh, I have five brothers. And when I was a teenager, about 12 years old, we had from 17 years old to five years old in the car while we go on holiday. So in preparation, we all had to line up and we had to remember where everything was packed into my dad's car. And then once everything is packed, because sometimes we had to have to unpack, we stop beside the, the, the side of the road, we have lunch, we have to know where the, the rusks are and where the, uh, the, the sausages are and where the boiled eggs are, right? You still remember that? And then we have to be able to pack it back because, you know, with six children and two adults, you, you have to pack a lot to sustain us for 10 days at Margate. That's where we came. And then once it's packed, dad will close the, uh, the car and we'll all, all line up and dad will have the rod. Why? Two reasons. One, because of what happened last time that we traveled. Secondly, for what we're going to do while we're going to travel. So he let us have it. And I always use that occasion to say, well, I've had my, my punishment for the travel, so I may as well make use of it. That's why the second reason came about, and that was because of last time. So we had a healthy respect for what my dad could do with the rod and the consequences of our sins. The same kind of respect. We never feared my dad. He was a loving, caring, wonderful father, but we knew what he could do. Our fear of the Lord, which, by the way, is the beginning of wisdom, can best be described as reverence and respect. Understanding how great the gift of salvation is, knowing what, is, what a great Savior Jesus is, demands the correct response to honor the Father. Good news is I'm going to wrap it up quickly. What will help you react as you should to the saving grace of Jesus? What will motivate you to a living hope, to aim to be holy, and to honor the Father? Knowledge will. That's why the following verses helps us. 1 Peter 1 verse 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Peter wrote in the first letter and explained the value of salvation and the value of the Savior. And then today we learned in the verses 13 to 17 how we must respond. And then he concludes and gives us a reason. And he said it's in the knowing, in reminding, being reminded of the value of that salvation that will get us to do the right things. You were bought with the precious blood of Jesus. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You were bought with the precious blood of Christ. If we had to put together all the wealth in the world, silver and gold is what Peter calls it, everything in the world, and you will allow me to represent you, and I'll take all that silver and gold, and one of you, I'll go to the Father and say, here, I have all the wealth of the world. Will you please forgive that one sin? Can't. That's how precious the blood of Christ is. Mark 14, verse 24. 
And Jesus said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Are you one of the many? If you are, then you would want to. Yes, and you must want to. Live in hope today and every day into the future. You must aim to be holy and you must honor the Father. Why won't you? Father, as we approach your throne of grace again, we are aware of how difficult this will be for us. We have tried and we have failed. We are so easily drawn into the hopelessness of those around us in the news, uh, in our neighbors, in our workplace, in our homes. We pray for your help. Help us to live in hope. Help us to be those who will provide the hope. Help us to live in such a hope that many will come to us and ask us, what is this hope that you have in you? And in our living, help us to aim with all our plans and all our actions to be holy. And in all of this, help us to honor the Father. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.